we are. Four seasons. Killed before its time. It's understandable in hindsight. It really is. I still begrudge it. With, with total certainty. Enterprise had finally found itself. And as I've been gushing so much about it, it had finally gotten to be a good show. Not perfect. Still at its flaws. Hell, we actually gave a lamentation for season four. But I mean, <laughs> you know, I gave a lamentation to season six DS9. It's still an amazing season, right? We got a lot to unpack today. Because we're doing this a little bit differently than normal. Because, well, I'm just going to be blunt about this as I can. I'm treating this as the series finale. Don't worry, there will be an episode next week. This is written by everyone. It's just the simplest way to put it. But it's worth noting that Reeves Stevens and Manny Cotto and Andre Bormanis, all of whom helped write this, this is all of their final contribution to Trek. Now, there's an asterisk to that, because obviously they would still be involved in the production line of things. They were still doing some prep work things. There's there's just other things that were happening about the round down and the switch over to syndication and blah, blah, blah. But as far as writing staff, this is their final writing credit. And in most ways that matters... This is their final inclusion into the franchise. Same thing with Marvin Rush, actually, who was directing this episode. And Gary Graham, who played Saval. And two other people I want to mention, because all those people have, are, you know, deserve credit and, and praise and all that fun stuff. But there's two names I want to really jump on. One of them is Michael Okuda and Denise Okuda. Now, Michael Okuda had been involved in Star Trek since Star Trek IV. The Voyage Home. That makes him one of the longest-standing veterans of Trek at this point in time, at 19 years of having worked on Trek. I say without hyperbole that Mr. Okuda and his wonderful wife are singularly responsible for a tremendous amount of the flavor, tone, and design, visual design, which is always ever important, of Trek from basically all of TNG through all of Enterprise. It's legitimately hard to overestimate the Okuda's impact on track. So I wanted to give huge, tremendous shout-outs and praise to that family and to all the wonderful, wonderful work they have done over the years. In fact, they were called back in, uh, I want to say about 2016-ish, to do a rehash of the, the, the technical manual and the encyclopedia in order to keep it up to date with all the information at that point in time. We also have... Jay Chataway. This is the final song, uh, the final music he worked on for the show. Now, I've made fun of Chataway's music before, but I want to be very clear about this in case I've never made this distinctly clear. I'm pretty sure I brought this up during TNG, but in case I didn't, the wallpaper music thing is not his fault. It's, it's the, it's the creative staff's fault. They wanted the wallpaper music. They got it. You know, if the customer asks for bland sludge and you're a, a five star chef, then you still produce bland sludge. That's, you just produce really good bland sludge, right? <laughs> now, I'm not saying Jay Chataway is a five-star, you know, composer, but he is good. He is someone who is actually a decent composer and has done some good work over the years, especially on Trek, but also elsewise. Um, I wanted to mention his stint because his first song he ever wrote was all the way back in Tin Man, which would have put that at 15 years ago. Now... In all of these cases, I double-checked to make sure to see if any of them were involved in New Trek. And in all of these cases, the answer is no, with one little asterisk. 
Apparently, the flute song that Chataway composed for Inner Light is something that is played over in Picard, so he gets credit for that. But he has not actually been involved in Picard the show. So this is it. So, I, I don't know how to properly honor the Okudas, Mr. Chataway, Marvin Rush, and his visual, visual style, Bormanis, and his inconsistencies, Manny Cotto, and his revitalization, and the Reeve Stevenses, and their many, many inclusions. I believe there's the possibility that Reeve Stevenses, uh, worked on like one or two more books after this. I'm not 100% sure of the timeline, and I was having trouble finding a codified timeline, and so I just, whatever, on that one. But either way, <sighs> before we move forward, since we're talking about behind-the-scenes stuff, I want to mention this here, because I have a different structure for this one. Obviously, Season 5 was something that was planned for. They were actually working towards it, and while threat of cancellation was there, that's not exactly new to Trek, so it is best to, to plan for the best, and or excuse me, hope for the best, plan for the worst. So they were still doing the prep work and re- you know, in order to make sure that they're ready to go. Like I'm, I'm saying this wrong. If you're involved in a production and you think you might be canceled and you don't do any prep work and then you are renewed, you're screwed because you haven't done any of the prep work. And if you're not renewed, well, that's whatever at that point. You've just lost the time and effort, but it's not a big deal. So it is the smart thing to prep just in case. That's what I'm trying to say. They had a storyline involving Stratos. In fact, they were going to start developing the beginning of Stratos. You're probably thinking, what the heck is Stratos? It's that city in the sky where they had the division between them, the, the city and the, the rock people. Remember that? The the degenerative mining. They were going to have a story about the Kazinti. This actually amuses the hell out of me because this would have been the first thing to truly codify TAS as canon. It's something that Paramount has since done in the in the years since then. They also were going to do something about the creation of the first Starbase as a story arc. Now, if you've been paying attention, this is something they hinted at and it's one of the bricks they laid previous to now. Um, they also were going to do more with the Mirror Universe. I've already talked that to death, so I don't have anything else to add to that. Paul's father was going to show up, and he was going to be a Romulan. This is something that was absolutely not planned in advance. This is definitely backloaded storytelling improv. But they were going to do this as a way to kind of explain not only part of her family life, but why it is that she is the way she is. I kind of prefer the fact that they didn't, personally. That's that's one of the only ones I don't care for. They're also going to do a prologue story, a prequel, if you will, to Flint, and have him be involved and have it go badly as a specific way to explain why he became so isolationist as of TOS's time. Now, there's actually probably about a dozen other story ideas that were bouncing around. These are the ones where they had actually done some prep work for them. Art design, or initial scripting, or storyboarding, or whatever. So these are the ones that were most likely going to actually happen, should Season 5 happen, along with Shran joining the crew, as I've mentioned a few times. However, obviously none of that came to pass. Instead, we get this. The episode begins with a focus on the child. Now, there's this bit where he mentions that protesters are in front of the Vulcan embassy and the the Andorian embassy. No one mentions this, but this, of course, to me, sounds like what you call a planned affair. You have a small group of people who are rabble-rousers who deliberately try to rile up a group of people to make it look like you have more support, to make it look like support just spontaneously erupts in support of your message. And these people just happen to be ready to go and, you know, happy, ready to march, so to speak, right? But the whole thing was planned. It's a way to try and inflate your perceived importance and, of course, accomplishes exactly what it was intended to, to make the aliens think 
that the humans don't want them here, or to make the aliens think the humans are not unified. This is the second benefit of Paxton's huge speech that he gives, and the method by which he gives it. He ensures that there is a wedge divided between the aliens and the humans in order to ensure that all non-human races are at least going to be thinking about this. But that leads me to the main thing. What's the end goal here? There's no way Paxton could actually enforce any of this, right? He could never actually win. <sighs> well, that depends on the definition of victory, doesn't it? I have been saving all this for this part, and I'm going to fail. Because this is getting into psychology and manipulative tactics and all sorts of other deeper, much more nuanced topics that I am only the very surface level of familiar with. <sighs> One of the things that tends to be a uh, substantial value when it comes to human psychology is channeled attention. It's the idea of trying to force your focus onto something in order to ensure that you and your brain perceive it as relevant and then take that and run with it, because that's what the mind does. It processes. That, that's, if I was to describe human consciousness as one word, it would be the word processing, because that's what we do. We don't just look at something and it's like, okay, we look at something and we extrapolate. If you see, uh, this is a random example. I don't know where I, I, this is. Someone in my chat brought up disc, uh, Call of Duty earlier, and this is probably where this is coming from. If you see a, a a picture of a wall, and there's a bullet hole, clearly obvious bullet hole in it, and that's all you see, where does your mind go? Like I, I should have actually prepped a picture. I should just hold up a picture and just okay. What do you think about this? Because this is the point. Your mind takes that and runs with it and starts thinking. Okay, well, it's clearly that, and there was probably a shot. I wonder if it came in or out. It probably is an area that's dangerous. It might have been a criminal situation. It might be a war zone. And your brain just starts processing. But the way the brain tends to process is based on the centric focus, the main thing that is being presented, especially visually. Thus, if someone is trying to show, to give this big speech about the ills and dangers of the future and is showing you an actual genetic hybrid between a human and, and a Vulcan, then the brain doesn't just look at that. It's like, okay, oh, he's so cute. No, instead what happens is, well, wait a minute. That means they're actually starting to, to crossbreed and if they're crossbreeding, then that could mean, and then it just, and the mind can just run with that. By focusing this, this is ensuring that everyone who is watching this broadcast is processing it. And frankly, the overwhelming majority of people will not process that in a way that he wants. I bet there are people in universe who saw that and were like, that's awesome. Like, that's, that's amazing that that's finally a thing that's happening. Remember, we have had hints before that humans and Vulcans have tried to, to mate, to have children in the past, and they have not succeeded. So there are probably going to be people who think, ah, someone finally managed the medical tech to make it happen. But he has ensured, nonetheless, that people are processing it, which leads me to the second point. The most difficult thing for any human being to do is to manage their emotions, ironically. Because emotions can actually get in the way of thought. Now, I've talked before about how, for example, anger literally chemically makes you stupider while you are actively in a state of, of legitimate rage. I've talked about that before. Um, this is actually something that only came to my awareness within the last, like, uh, oh, that would have been about six, five, six years ago, relatively recent in my life. 
But those studies have continued and continued to extrapolate on this very concept and have continued to show that emotions tend to just sort of block thought in many ways. Now, this makes sense. It's actually a, a method of ensuring survival. It's, it's kind of a, a built-in instinctual sort of a thing, right? You know, if you are afraid, you don't, your, your brain won't be stopping to process. You will be reacting to things. It's one of the reasons we have those uh, reflex kind of a thing, right? And in the moment thing, it's actually one of the reasons why training tends to work so difficult, uh, so significantly into the difficult task of ensuring that your automatic fear, emotion, gut reaction that happens before your brain has consciously started processing is that it subconsciously immediately does what it needs to do. You know, look into pilots or Formula One drivers or many other people who do very, very, very dangerous things that require sub-split-second reaction times, right? Now, and of course, this applies in the military as well, and frankly, in the medical field as well. Funny how that works out. This, of course, all ties into the idea of trying to control people via their emotions. An extremely old tactic, one that is so old that I'm pretty sure the first historical document of this attempted tactic was someone scribbling on a cave wall somewhere saying, Okay, I'm being facetious, but I'm pretty sure this has been with us since humans have been with us. But it's extremely effective because of the fact that it takes so much mental processing to be aware of it happening within yourself. It requires a, dis a degree of dissonance, which itself is part of the problem, but then also an external viewpoint on one's own perspectives. Being willing to challenge your own thoughts and minds on these matters is something that most people don't even bother to learn. Because, I mean, why bother, right? But even those who do try to learn this still fumble and fail. I will go ahead and say that I try constantly to have this kind of mental discipline over myself, to not allow myself to get roped into emotional arguments, but instead to have intellectual ones. Oh, don't mistake me. Emotions are valuable and important, and I do care, and I do you know, get angry, and I get sad, and I, and I have empathy and sympathy and all those wonderful, amazing things. But those things can, and do, get in the way of actual discussion and actual discourse. Now, what does this all have to do with Paxton's approach? Notice that the main things he hits here are reproduction and loss of identity. Two very emotional things. It's very core to what most people think of themselves as. Who and what we are, and who and what our children will be. Thus, hitting us both from an emotional perspective and from a base biological perspective. In this is the thrust of his argument. The, it, it boils down to the purity argument, if you're going to really break it down, which is all just a load of hooey, as DePaul so effortlessly points out later on in the episode. But the point is, by engaging people with the visual stimuli, focusing the attention, and ensuring the emotional impact of the one-two punch of identity and reproduction... I know I keep pointing at my belly for that. I'm, I'm not going to point at my crotch. The... <laughs> See, you got to break up topics like this with light little hard things. I've still got Nightman right over here. Remember him? We're talking about him. By ensuring these three points, Paxton has guaranteed his first point of victory. What is that point of victory? Well, some people are going to think about it and some people are going to be swayed, but that's actually not really his victory. Truth be told, Terra Prime probably has all the support it's going to get. And truth be told, that support will probably dwindle out over time. But... What is almost a guarantee is that people are now talking about it. He has guaranteed that this is now a topic that needs to be discussed and processed. 
And people are going to be processing this event and discussing this event. And it's going to be a focal point of people's thoughts and ideas for years to come. This is, in my opinion, his greatest victory. And you'll notice he wins the moment this episode starts. He has achieved his victory by sheer virtue of making sure that no matter what happens to him and this attack and this particular movement, people will be discussing this um, long after he's dead. Now, I had a few other things to mention about that. Um, the brain filling in the blanks, I already mentioned that. Uh, the forcing the issue thing. Uh, there's a couple other little tidbits that are tied into this. First of all, there's a bit where uh, Tucker is trying to ask Greaves, why are you specious? And Greaves says, I hate him. But no, Tucker is like, is it the ears? Is it the fact that they're vegetarian? Now, we don't know what Greaves has against them because, and I hate to bring up this topic because most people actually misunderstand what this means, but what Greaves is going through is almost guaranteed to be a version of confirmation bias. Put as simply as possible, because this is a very complex topic, confirmation bias is when you make up your mind and then are more inclined to information that conforms to your already decided opinion. More against, or more for, if it's for you, more against if it's against you. Bam. People tend to misunderstand that and misuse that argument constantly. It's actually very tiring, which is why I didn't want to bring it up. But I bring this up because Greaves gives no logical reason for his argument. In fact, his big argument for why he's against Vulcans is because they didn't intervene in World War III. Okay. Now, hang on, pause. That's an interesting prime directive discussion and, in fact, could lead to a whole discussion about the ethics and morality of intervening in other lives and the very nature of the prime directive itself. But that's not what he means. Instead, he specifically thinks that they deliberately didn't get involved so that we would be weaker so Vulcans can control us and manipulate us. Which is nonsense. It is incredibly illogical and is practically the same as saying the Earth is flat. So, first of all, <laughs> but second of all, actually, considering the fact that the Romulans were manipulating the Vulcan High Command for however many years, it's interesting and possible that that was actually something that was on the board, at least at one point. Nevertheless, his argument is so flawed, I don't even feel the need to dissect it, because it's, it's, like, it's like saying the Earth is flat. I made that comparison on purpose. There is no factual basis whatsoever in his statement. Now, he is also, as the episode shows, made this statement in a vacuum, or by virtue of having listened to other people. In, in other words, the only things that make him inclined to believe this ludicrous claim is that other people might have mentioned it in passing rumor-mongering, which, because he had already decided to dislike Vulcans, he was then more willing to take that as read and flag that as a true fact. Confirmation bias. Now, this is interesting, because Tucker goes through a little bit of this. Just a little bit. It's not quite the same. Uh, not the confirmation bias, sorry. I'm, I'm, we're, we're shifting topics, apologies. Because I should have said this earlier, but I wanted to talk about that first, just to get that out of the way, because I'm an idiot and I have no idea how to construct my verbal essays. Tucker... <laughs> Tucker mentions, you know... Oh my god, she's pregnant. She should have told me. There's this whole scene I actually skipped over last time about where he's talking with Phlox. And he mentions, oh my god, you know, and there's this worry and this fretting. And Phlox is like, 
I think you know the answer to that. And Tucker looks at Phlox and is like, yeah, I guess you're right, I do. So I guess I'm lying. There is a tiny bit of confirmation bias here, just a little bit. Because Tucker, and this is tying this all in, I swear, Tucker reacts emotionally. The, the reproduction and the identity and his connection to T'Pol is a very emotional thing. And the very idea of his child is a very reproductive thing. So you can see the connections and how that hits him in a way that he doesn't quite think about it. Then he makes up his mind and then he looks at the evidence, the fact that it is clearly their child, and uses that as fact. But the problem is the actual facts show that that's ludicrous. Just as ludicrous as the idea. No, really, just as ludicrous as the very idea that Vulcans were deliberately trying to conquer Earth. It is exactly as ludicrous. There is no way in hell to Paul would ever go, go, go to term or remove the embryo or do anything else and never even mention it to the father. There is not a chance in hell. And he knows that. But he still worries and he still thinks about it because the focus of his attention is pushed onto the child. Thus, it is now something he is processing. And thus, it is now something that's going to be discussed. And he would is willing to think things, feel things, and say things that he knows aren't true. Yeah, that's brilliant, if I can be blunt. This whole construct and the way it ties in directly to Tucker, as well as to the themes of the work as the whole, is nothing short of ruddy brilliant. I love it. I really do. And this is why I mentioned that I would keep the, the, the pregnancy thing in, in my rewrite, because this so clearly ties into the theme. The difference is, rather than have Tucker be a victim of this, I would have him show the nature of it and how it happens in others by virtue of pushing back against that, by doing what we try so hard to do every day of our lives, most of us do anyways, of trying to fight our confirmation bias, trying to fight our emotional reaction, and trying to fight our focused attention, and to think if there is nothing else that I could add to the universe. It is that word. Think. Think for yourself. Think, process, work through it, actually look at the facts, and try to maneuver through your own brain which is actively trying to manipulate and deceive you. I know it's hard. And I know it's not easy. <sighs> Anyways. <laughs> the final thing I wanted to comment on, just briefly. I love how the villains of the final arc of Enterprise are Tucker and Archer from season one. No, really. Think about it. Think about the severe and stark speciesism that both were showing at the beginning of the show. Now, Tucker started getting out of his pretty quickly. Archer took until season three, honestly. But the two of them still were very anti-Vulcan and, as kind of a consequence, kind of anti-alien early on. Now, they weren't actively trying to shoot aliens or kick them out of the system, but at the same time... You see that. You see that attitude and you see how it could escalate or you could see how it could be misused. Or if if hands were not reached out to each other, how that could have gone much worse than it did. It's also interesting, too, because both uh, 
Archer and Tucker grew out of that thanks to micro, that is to say, individual connections with other individuals, Saval and Paul being the two most obvious ones. And thus that affects the macro, because that's kind of how we tend to think as well. We use representations in order to build expectations. And um, I find that doubly interesting that since Tucker flat out says to Greaves, you ever met a Vulcan? And his answer is, no, not until T'Pol. And boy, doesn't that just say everything. <sighs> wow, I've talked for 25 minutes. I haven't even talked about the episode yet. I do hope you'll forgive my indulgence. Like I said, I'm kind of treating this like the finale. Frankly, next week's episode might be a lot shorter. <sighs> so, uh, the council makes the decision to go ahead and wipe everything out. That's actually an interesting decision to make. It kind of makes sense. You know, you don't negotiate with terrorists. I mean, that's not just a slogan. There's a validity to that. And these are terrorists. Let's be 100% clear about this. No matter what Paxton says, what he is doing is the, the, the clear-cut definition of terrorism. And you know, I tend to be a lot more harsh about the utilization of that word than other people. Paxton's a terrorist. This leads to an interesting question. Would Paxton kill the child if it came down to it? What do you think? Honest question. Because on the one hand... Yeah, I know, he's evil. But on the other hand, he's not really a true zealot. Not really. And I mention that because true zealots are terrifying in their own right, but true zealots adhere to their own cause without exclusion, and that includes themselves. Paxton is not that. He has absolutely no problem using alien technology, freely given, in order to extend his lifespan, in order to accomplish his goals. In fact, this leads me to another question. What do you think Paxton's goals really are? Now, I've kind of already hinted at it, so I'll say it flat outright right now. But go ahead and pause. Hit the pause button. Hit space, you know. Tap the phone, whatever it is you do. And I know some people watch me on Xbox. Hi, Xbox viewers, you're awesome. The <laughs> So why do you think he's doing it? What do you think his goal is? I think his goal is to make his mark on history. I think that while he is enough of a bigot, let's just call it what it is, to be, you know, to believe in some of the things he mentions, I don't think he is a true believer. I think it's just that it's convenient for him to think that way because of his own confirmation bias issues. And I think he wants to make his mark on history. He wants to be the great venerated leader that Colonel Green is not. Oh, Colonel Green is remembered and mentioned in the future, but always in that sort of dismissive tone, that uh, kind of a way. He wants to be that but vindicated. This is my opinion. Regardless, uh, this then leads to the Travis-Gannett dynamic, which was really cool and is immediately torpedoed in favor of neither of them are willing to trust each other and there's lack of communication and there's drama and it's dumb. It's probably the worst part of the episode and brings this down from what otherwise would be an excellent score to merely a very good one. Paxton constantly uses this approach and it's, 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 a, it's a bog-standard villainous approach. It's like, okay, so there's a bus over there. It's filled with kids. Now, I'm going to warn them to all evacuate the bus, and you're going to shoot the bus. But I don't want to shoot the bus. Okay, well, if you don't want to, then I'll have to, and I'll have to shoot when the kids are still on board. Do you really want to kill those kids? And you see how neatly and stupidly, if you think about it, he has re assigned the blame to you for the action that he is propagating. It is an extremely common villainous act. I'd actually rather not talk about it in real life connotations, but it shows up all the time in fiction. 
And that's that's exactly what he does. He does this consistently, too, especially to Tucker, where Tucker is trying to sabotage him. And it was nice seeing Tucker slug him. That, that, was, that was nice. Not, not Paxton. He slugs Greaves, but still. Anywho. <clears throat> so then, T'Pol is there with the baby, which is adorable. Hello. Hang on. I need I need a stand-in. Come here. Come here, Blue. Thank you, Blue. You're awesome. Hi. All right, Blue. I am your mother. Aren't you a guy? Shut up. And, <laughs> and she's just so... I don't know how to deal with this, which I imagine is how most parents feel. So, hashtag relatable. Um, I suppose we'll need a name for you. We should discuss that with your father. And there's just, there's just something wonderfully adorable, almost adorkable, about the way he does it. Or she, darts the fuse. Sorry, sorry, I was looking at my phone at, a, at something my dad was sending me. That's a crossword. That's a cross fuse there. There's something adorable about the way she does it and about the way she talks about it. It's also terrifying because one of the things this episode does is it actually treats you like you have a brain. This is why this episode is so high on the list for me. Like, in a nutshell, of all the many things to gush about it. Just like Lamentations, the absolute cream of the crop has to have an extra little bit of oomph. And in this case, it's the fact that the episode treats you like you are smart. It doesn't tell you things outright, and it actually lays the pieces there for you to put together yourself, as we've been doing for the last 40 minutes, however long we've been talking. Nope, 30 minutes, my bad. A little off. So there's this bit where she's trying to figure out what's going on, and there's something wrong, but she doesn't say it. She doesn't talk out loud to herself like most fiction would do, and she doesn't. And there's not this beeping thing that says, beep, beep, just shoving it in your face. Instead, it's just, something's wrong. There's also small moments. There's this bit where they land on Mars. We find out, thanks to good exposition, that Reed and Phlox have never been on Mars before. Well, possibly Phlox, but definitely Reed. And Reed steps out and he says, 32. 32 planets I've been on. Because of course he would keep track. And what I love most about that is Phlox keeps track, too. 248. But it's not said in a competitive way. That's, that's shared enthusiasm, right there in a nutshell. And God, if that one scene isn't all of Trek in one... 10-second little stint, isn't it? Reed, despite being on this dangerous, exciting mission, is nevertheless someone who just has to take a moment to recognize the feat of having stepped on his 32nd planet, and then flocks without even hesitation, with no shame, no guilt, no pandering, no, no mockery, just joins right in, 248, because he's been doing the exact same thing, despite being a different person, different age, different race, different species. <sighs> Anywho, so this then leads to the hypocrisy thing uh, where I mentioned, you know, my theories about what Paxton actually wants. And then Paxton is defeated. That's weird. There's 12 minutes left in the episode. Yep. We cut to, uh, we, we, we find out, this is actually kind of funny. The Vulcans apparently have an embassy in Berlin as well as Canberra. That's an interesting choice. Anybody out there? I mean, you don't have to share. I don't, I don't want to dox anyone. Does anyone live down in that region? I've never been to Australia. I keep meaning to go, but it's on my list of 7,000 places to go, and it's not like I have time or money or power. But we see Kelby. Oh, my God. Kelby was the one who was the, the, the agent all along. They actually, that was by all accounts, that was the original plan, that Kelby was the Terra Prime agent. And God, wouldn't that just make sense? But no, it's Masaro. You're probably thinking, Who? Well, this is funny. I decided to look this up. 
Masaru was actually mentioned in effectively background dialogue multiple times, going as far back as season three. But it's one of those characters that's never actually shown on camera. You know, you know how that goes. So instead, he shows up, and I love the fact this actually got to me. I didn't think it would. By the time he's out there, by the time they're looking for him, he has already decided to die. He's already committed to this action. And he is already at the idea of, okay, but he needs them to know first. I wanted to say I'm sorry. Tell, tell my parents or grandparents, everyone, tell them I'm sorry. I didn't mean for people to be harmed. And even a weapon set to stun is lethal at point-blank range. So... This then leads to uh, a scene that I, I bawled at. I'm just going to be honest. I, I actually think this has... I haven't seen this show since my niece was born. Which I mentioned because this hit me a lot harder than it ever has before. Because uh, Elizabeth, the child, dies. Now, I found out, this is horrible, that... They, If you pay attention, it would be entirely reasonable if Elizabeth had actually lived and she could just be the first human-Vulcan hybrid, and that would have been fine. They apparently decided to tie her fate to the fate of the show. It, because remember, all this stuff was written before they found out. So they left it kind of open-ended, So, and that's why the, the dialogue is structured that way, and there's a few small changes that are needed to decide one way or the other, depending on whether the show would be renewed or not. If the show was renewed, Elizabeth would have lived, and she would have been the first human-Vulcan hybrid. Enterprise was not renewed. So thanks for that. Flox's reaction is telling. And is basically my own. You know, I never expected to find a second family. <laughs> Trinier does a great job in the, in the actual final scene. Apparently, he had just found out that his own wife, his real-life wife, was having a child. And the idea of that child dying in as an infant was just hitting him like a ton of bricks, which I understand completely. And so his sobbing and grief was actually kind of legitimate there. In fact, it was so hard that uh, Jolene Blaylock was having trouble not breaking down herself. You notice she just completely stonewalls. Like, she's done a thing over the whole series where she'll show little tidbits of emotion. She doesn't do that here. She just is a brick wall. Again, because the actress kind of had to be. But this is appropriate because this is how both people would react to this grief. Tucker would be beside himself. And T'Pol wouldn't be able to do anything. It is, of course, interesting that T'Pol is the one that reaches out the hand to him. They just hold hands there. It's a powerful moment. But you'll notice I skipped over one tiny little tidbit because I wanted to talk about this last. Archer gives a speech. It's his first good speech in the whole show. <laughs> but what I love most about it is that I actually firmly agree with a, a point that is being made within the speech. Maybe I'm just confirmation biasing here. But I do agree with this concept. The final frontier is the connections between people. The way we interact, the way we are. We are. Simply by being we. Simply by existing as a group and as a consensus and talking and discussing and unifying and arguing and debating and fighting. We, the very concept of such, are the final frontier. And something about that really made me smile. And just to put the cap on it, 
Saval is the first one to applaud Archer's speech. Ladies and gentlemen, this has, in every way that matters, been Enterprise. It has been a hell of a ride. I do hope you have enjoyed, because next week... Next week, we're doing something a little bit different. I do hope to see you there, but if I don't, I will understand for once. LLAP.